Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Carl Abrahamson, author of the recently released Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan. Among other topics, Carl discusses the life of LaVey, the power of nostalgia and the discarded, the S-word, and whether the Church of Satan is best understood as a religion, a philosophy, or perhaps performance art. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, or subscribe to the YouTube channel if that is where you view this. Also, hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. Your support is truly appreciated. Carl Abrahamson is a writer, publisher, magico-anthropologist, photographer, and filmmaker, most recently producing the documentary Anton LaVey, Into the Devil's Dead. Since the mid-1980s, Abrahamson has been active in the magical community, integrating a culture as a way of life and lecturing about his findings and speculations. He is the editor and publisher of the annual anthology of a culture, The Fenris Wolf, and the author of A Culture and Resonances and the recently published Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan. Carl, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. Yes, well, thank you. I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, as I told you before hitting the record button, um, I really didn't know much about Anton LaVey uh, before reading your book. And I've been ruminating on it all week. It, um, it led to quite a few mental explosions, I think, mm-hmm. in my brain. And uh, I've been trying to form articulate and cogent thoughts. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I, I hope I don't stutter and stumble too much here uh, in my attempt to pull it all together. Uh, but first, I thought it, m- the best place to begin would be with LeVay himself. Uh, because I think there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding in regards to who he was. So I, I thought that I would ask, you know, well, who was he? And uh, maybe you could also um, go into your relationship with him a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both of those are uh, big topics, but I'll do my best right. to keep it uh, condensed and focused. I mean, if we begin with him. Uh, he was uh, born in, in 1930, raised in a, a secular Jewish family uh, in the, from the Midwest, uh, but relocating to California quite early on during the 30s. Um, and he was, um, you know, unique in the sense that he sought out his own passions, his own obsessions with, you know, pulp fiction and science fiction and this kind of culture that was... Uh, uh, readily available for kids at, at that time um, and sort of feeling a little bit like an outsider um, uh, according to his own story in a way. And then as time moved on, he broke away from the expected trajectory of you know going to college and these things. Uh, he started to work with um, circus and sideshow and was like at the peak of that kind of culture uh, colorful, um, very exotic, uh, also looked down upon in a way, you know, this sort of sideshow culture. 
Uh, it wasn't like now when it's almost fetishized and cool and trendy. It was the real deal in the sense that it was uh, grimy and gritty and dirty and sensual and uh, sexual and uh, prurient and freakish in a way. Uh, so he worked in that circuit, not only sort of in the sideshow, uh, but actually in the circus working with the big cats, uh, tigers and lions, and uh, learning how to, to deal with them. But his main passion all throughout his life was music. So he was very skilled uh, working the keyboard, and he uh, played music for, for uh, circuses and uh, sideshows. Um, and then when that sort of... Uh, when he left that behind, he, he was um, in California still, in LA, also in San Francisco, and um, uh, making a living out of being a musician, uh, working in bars, you know, sleazy dive bars, but also in some orchestras and just, you know, living the life of a musician passionately. But he felt early on that he was a bit of an outsider. He had, you know, occult interests. He had interests of uh, weird and forgotten things. And he liked sort of the film noir of the time, the, the late 40s, that weren't really, you know, mainstream blockbuster crowd pleasers. They uh, cemented something in him, which was this lore and uh, attraction of the outsider, someone who may have a tarnished uh, surface, but has a heart of gold, you know? And I think he identified with that kind of outsidership fairly early on. And this then carried on, meaning he uh, was his own man. He was uh, um, independent. He uh, indulged in his interests, um, you know, movies and, and music and these things, but also the occult and magical studies. And he came to the uh, uh, conclusion or the insight that uh, much of the arcane uh, lore, the arcane sort of dustier things from uh, occult or esoteric tradition uh, was kind of not really working that well, at least not for him, uh, had more to do with social needs of being in a group or uh, finding your place in a hierarchical structure, sort of a mini version of society outside that little group. And it wasn't really for him, yet he couldn't deny that many of the topics uh, were of uh, great interest to him. And he, of course, had that sort of you call the, the realistic approach also from the sideshow, what he eventually called lesser magic, uh, which is like tricks and um, uh, stage magic. And this thing of how you affect people with very simple and causal tricks in a way. That's more to do with psychology than, than parapsychology. Um, and then, you know, time passed. And in the uh, late 50s, um, when he was approaching his uh, 30s, he was quite well settled as an established musician. And he moved into this beautiful um, painted lady, the San Francisco old house that he eventually painted black, which was then called the Black House. And he uh, set up this group called the Magic Circle, which was exactly that. It was a circle of, of friends and acquaintances who were all interested in these sort of very dark topics. But again, not from this common way of looking at things, you know, looking at a tradition and sort of uh, delving into that, uh, but trying to find new things. And he was interesting in, um, he was interested, but also interesting because he wove in his own passions and cultural strains into that cauldron. And I'm thinking, for instance, of the, the lore and fiction of uh, pulp fiction, uh, science fiction, um, the weird tales, 
contingent, the cosmic horror uh, contingent, uh, all of these things um, together with his own you know, strong passion uh, for, for instance, German expressionist cinema with this dramatic um, way of lighting scenes and stuff like that. All of that made a huge impression on this budding magician. So in this magic circle, there were enough people and enough, you know, creative life to for it to to uh, lead him onwards on his own magical path, and he sided more and more with uh, the dark force or whatever that you symbolically could call Satan uh, in in our specific, you know, Judeo-Christian culture, and and he liked he liked that he found a resonance with it, uh, and then uh, basically took that on as not only a gimmick but a real sort of uh, affiliation in a way um, and then you know what happened then is more well known uh, he uh, constructed and made happen the church of satan uh, an actual group uh, with uh, philosophy as uh, some would say it's even a religion that happened in 1966 and then from then on it just snowballed in 1969 he uh, wrote put together the satanic bible and in the 70s, there were satanic rituals and the satanic witch or the complete witch, as it was called, uh, meaning uh, he was thriving uh, under the umbrella of this very controversial uh, symbol. And then uh, up until the mid 70s, it was all like a success story, um, making a career, making money, uh, being having that kind of publicity that he wanted. And then there were, as it's always the case, when it comes to magical orders or group dynamics, um, it sort of uh, not imploded, but there were some conflicts basically. So after that, he uh, retracted a little bit and focused on the core activity, which was of course, according to the philosophy, his own pleasure and his own power, but also letting that trickle out into uh, the Church of Satan environment. And then another 10 years down the line, uh, he had uh, become uh, I don't know, maybe a little bit more misanthropic. He was always misanthropic, but also that combined with a sort of failing health made him, uh, I wouldn't say reclusive, but more and more isolated and focusing even more on the core activities. And that's sort of where I came into the, the picture of the story, late 80s, when he was receiving only a few people that he, you know, in a way cherry picked uh, from, from different environments or, or whatever, people that caught his attention, basically. And uh, then, that, then he uh, lived on until 1997. Uh, and by then he had also uh, quite recently in 93, um, um, created uh, a new human being in a new relationship. That was his son, Xerxes, who was born in 93. He had two daughters from previous marriages. Um, and um, still taking care of, you know, the legacy was while he was still alive. And one of the premises of the book that we're going to talk about uh, is that uh, he very consciously left uh, seed or traces in a younger generation for them to, to uh, take on in a way. And that, that was basically the, the short story of, of, uh, of LaVey and his career. And then how I came into this was that uh, I come from Sweden. It's a very you know, secure and stable uh, place. But of course, as a teenager, you're branching out, you're looking for things and certainly great if they're somewhat controversial. Um, and for me, you know, I found a lot of occult stuff, looked at it, uh, found it all very, very interesting. Uh, but the um, La Vez Satanic Bible, 
I found um, that it made me feel that kind of resonance with it. I like the language. I like the ideas. You could tell even then, although the book was from the late 60s, you could feel that he was really innovative in his approach to uh, occultism in a way and to magic and to ritual magic. There was a lot of, of things in there that was easily, uh, it was more easy to approach than for instance, Crowley and other more technical uh, people uh, around. Um, and and uh, then what happened was that at this same time, I was very much active in, you could call it occultural networking. This was before the internet. So it was all like seeking out groups, seeking out people. And I've always been like that, you know, actively seeking out people that I uh, like and that I'm inspired by. And to make this story uh, slightly shorter, I had a band called White Stains and we made a record called Sweet Jane. And that song was like a tribute to uh, Jane Mansfield's relationship with LaVey, because that actually happened, and her relationship with the Church of Satan, because that also happened. And for me, as a teenager, I had been immersed in that lore, you know, Satanism and occultism, but also American trash culture in a way, loving these peroxide goddesses and loving, you know, B-movies and all these things. So for me, that was kind of a meltdown experience, uh, learning about how they had been together. So a couple of years later, I wrote that song and we recorded it. And my friend Genesis Piorich, I was active in the Temple of Psychic Youth at the time. Genesis suggested I send the record to LaVey. And of course, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll do that. And I didn't really expect anything, you know, coming from that. However, a couple of months later, I did receive a letter from Anton LaVey, uh, not only praising the initiative, but also making me a member. And as you can imagine, I was like, it blew my mind and it, it still blows my mind. Um, and from there on, you know, uh, when I went to the US, that was my first American trip ever. Uh, I went to, to see him and uh, we had, you know, some pretty good times. And then I came back almost every year um, up until 93. The first time was in 89. Uh, and we talked about things and, and he was always very, very, uh, supportive and inspiring. I was already very active in publishing and music and, and the Fenris Wolf, the, the journal that you mentioned had already come out in 89 and I could use some of this material. Just very supportive. And, and um, of course, you know, for a young person, uh, whether you're looking at it as some kind of, you know, father figure or just a source of inspiration, it was a great, great time of my life. And, and meeting him had a you know, a great part of that uh, formative, uh, psychological, emotional, you know, existential um, uh, thing or cluster. And so, so basically that's also kind of a condensed uh, version, yeah. but it was fantastic. It was like beyond belief. Mm -hmm. And uh, it made such an impression on me that, you know, I'm here today talking to you about it, which is like several decades later. <laughs> and of course, I probably wouldn't, do that if it hadn't been like so uh, important to me that I felt uh, all along the decades that I, I need to share this somehow. And that's the reason why, why I made the film, first of all. I wanted to meet some of the people I had known, meet some new people that also met him during this last decade of his life, because it was a, an important one. He was sort of out of sight, but he was, you know, in his own world and 
there he was very active, writing little essays, playing and recording music, uh, meeting people from a younger generation, and, and just uh, making sure that he enjoyed whatever it was that he was doing. Because that, of course, is like the, the central tenet or the core of the philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that so much. And thank you for sharing all of that. And one of the reasons I appreciate it, it is something that keeps kind of presenting itself to me recently is that one of the chief goals, it seems, is to become who you are, yeah. to be this individual, you know, and um, I can definitely see how he, you know, just completely embraced that. And yeah. I, I loved how human he came across in the book because, you know, you have this caricature that you will see in American media. Yeah. And, and I told you, you know, I watched your documentary and I watched an older one speak of the devil. And one of the things that I loved was seeing him play his, the music yeah. and how gleeful he was, yeah. Yeah. you know, it was like, he was a little kid at times and it was just this, pure expression of creativity mm. yeah absolutely i mean that, that that's uh, uh i know some people who were there um who who didn't like that so much you know because you're almost i wouldn't say push but you was sort of um the the schedule of the evening was that you you know got there and we had you know drinks or coffee and then maybe go out to dinner and then you always came back to the to black house and this always was like from the evening and and until the next morning right. and and at some point you know those um, either this thing yeah maybe we should watch a movie now and then you watch the movie or two but there was always this thing yeah maybe we should go to the kitchen now and that meant that you know you were exposed to this wonderful experience of him playing music and it was like beyond belief cool and i i uh uh, know that some people didn't appreciate sort of like the music he played and you know but whatever it was just so right. fantastic yeah. to be there with him and yeah. hearing him because he truly was uh, I would say a, a musical genius in the same way that Chico Marx was a musical mm -hmm. genius uh, there was this as you say gleeful or playful attitude and his incredible treatment of the keyboards he was a very skilled uh, keyboard player and of course he had um, several uh, synths, quite modern synths, on racks in the kitchen, right. and he had programmed them with all the sounds that he liked. And it wasn't like the really modern synth sounds. He made them all sound like old circus mm -hmm. bands, circus yeah. organs, uh, Wurlitzers, um, cheesy and corny in a way, but also fantastic because you had that notion that that this is a guy who knows exactly what he wants. He's taking no prisoners. Uh, um, and, and just uh, enjoys it so much. And I, you could tell he's spent hours upon hours fiddling with these things, you know, uh, to make it sound just right. And there we come to one of the key concepts is like, you know, taking care of and valuing and also nurturing your own nostalgia in a way. Because of course, obviously he was remembering the times in these different bars, but mainly the circus days, I would say. Uh, and because it sounded like these kinds of orchestras and for him obviously were there were times of uh, vitality virility um, uh, joy of life joie de vivre and you could tell he, he was when he started playing it was like a, a transformation going on it was he became timeless and spaceless in a way and also um, 
he had it all in his mind. You know, I'm sure he looked at, you know, notes occasionally or collected them and found, found tunes. He loved to discover old tunes that maybe he had heard like 40 years ago or that had some kind of meaning and that was, for, you know, forgotten or not successful. He loved that. But he also, for instance, I asked him one time, uh, do you know anything Scandinavian? Uh, and he just thought for like a second and then he was just like, hammering out this uh, very, you know, very Scandinavian folk, folk song-like uh, tune um, that I actually recorded. And it ended up on, on uh, I think, the second album that my band put out. And I call it then the Satanic Hambo. And it was like, he was so, you know, alive and funny and sort of laughing while playing it. Then later on, I found out that um, that was actually an old Danish Christmas song. And, and it's just like, where, where, you know, where did he hear that? Where had he heard that? And where, how could he have memorized that song? Because it wasn't like, you know, what do you call it? Something from the great American songbook that most talented musicians can sort of play. It was so odd. So, um, uh, I don't know, just something you'd never expect. But he had it in his mind or in his system and just sort of played it with zest. And that was remarkable. And then he liked to do medleys, you know, preferably medleys that were with contrasting things, uh, anything from, you know, um, Great American Songbook to, to uh, the, like the Soviet National Anthem or the Horst Wessel lead from, from like Nazi Germany, just making a, 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 both a mess in a way, but a mix and a mesh of all these weird things. Uh, and laughing his, his butt off while doing it. And of course, that, that spread to whatever congregation was there, whether it was like two people or five people. Uh, but it was really a, a, a privilege and a joy to see him play. You know, a yeah. great conversationalist, great source of information, uh, great to watch movies with and, you know, just on, on all levels. But that kind of thing where you actually saw him play, that was uh, very much like, you know, really watching a magician uh, mm-hmm. perform uh, not only music, but his actual tricks. You know? yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Wasn't um, his uh, last uh, partner, Blanche Barton, I seem to recall, I think it was her in your book, in the interview, where she said something along the lines that he was always performing. I think that was actually Kenneth Anger. Was it? okay? Yes, it was yeah. kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. All, yeah. All, all apologies to Blanche Barton. Then. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I think yeah. Blanche saw more of him than Kenneth Anger. I mean, sure. they were friends, so so sure. they met, and Anger actually stayed in the Black House for periods of time. Right. But right. but I think Blanche saw more of Lavey and different aspects. Sure. And sure. I think that um, she says in the film and also in the book that uh, actually Lavey must have been an idealist on some level mm-hmm. because otherwise, you know if he had been a pure misanthrope, he would never have done all the things that he actually did in terms of sharing and disseminating. Mm -hmm. And I think that for Anger, Anger was one of these people who were involved in the magic circle already in in like the early to mid sixties before the Church of Satan. And I think um, it was very much colored by his memories and experience from that time when LaVey was very much of a you know, showman, some someone who wanted attention and also got it because he was very good at it. Also, a legacy from the from the circus days. So, um, I I think that um, certainly people 
who met him more than I did. But I felt that uh, it wasn't only a show. He was, you know, when he was relaxed and we were just talking, uh, it didn't feel uh, affected. It didn't feel um, manipulative or in any way. It was just like a relaxed, relaxed situation between uh, people of like mind. And so um, I don't think he put on a show. Uh, right. Sometimes he did when we were out having dinner and, and he noticed that some people recognized him, <laughs> then, you know, you grow uh, as a sort of a celebrity in a way. Uh, but uh, in the safety and sanctity of his own home, um, he could relax. And then sure. you, you met a different person. Yeah. 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 And, you know, again, I really appreciated that everything he did seemed to come out of this, just authenticity and yeah. i can see how his life experiences informed his entire philosophy you know working at the circus and the sideshows he had been a police photographer yeah. uh, and taking like pictures of crime scenes and yeah. uh you know he's a musician i would consider him a philosopher absolutely uh, you know he was a movie aficionado uh, I started watch. I unfortunately I didn't make it through it, but also in preparation, I started uh, watching the 1947 version of Nightmare Alley. Right. Uh, and through that, I'm like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he was a Ghostbuster for San Francisco. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and so I could see how all of this sort of came together in one individual, and yeah. then sort of. I don't know the language to use here, but kind of prismed out, I guess, maybe is the way I'm thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think also it's that it, there have been per periods of, of uh, you know, uh, criticism and mm -hmm. people uh, feel a need of scrutinizing or, you know, mm -hmm. looking at things. But what happens is that some people are just, you know, larger than life. Yeah. And, you have to also take into account that the, the background, meaning circus sideshow, that's that's um, you you sparkle things with with stardust in a way. You know, you enhance certain things to create an impression. And he was certainly knowledgeable knowledgeable about those techniques, and I'm sure he did it a lot too. But what people question is, you know, was he really this? Or was he really that? You know, all of this has been proven. Yeah, he was these things. He was, or you know, had all these professions or phases in life when he worked with certain things and all of this gelled uh, came together specifically under the church of satan umbrella because then of course you he was um, you know halfway through his life in a way and and um, at that point you have had those formative experiences that you then then take on uh, you uh, have a challenge if you're a creative person to sort of reformulate and process and and express them in new ways and that's exactly what he did you know from this division that exists in from a technical uh, point of view in um, the satanic bible you know you have the lesser magic and you have the higher or the, the greater magic uh, and the lesser magic is sort of this uh, down to earth let's call it sort of the sideshow legacy of um um, manipulation and you know creating tricks and sort of diversions and sidetracking people to uh, to make the trick uh, successful um, that could be 
seen as uh, you know that was that was taught as a thing. It's called lesser magic, but it doesn't mean that it's l- worth less. Uh, it was just uh, a different thing than what he called uh, greater magic. Meaning, then you go into the ritual chamber, then you go into psychodramatic mode, then you have attributes and music and an atmosphere that help you amplify whatever it is that you want to have happen. So those are two quite different uh, mind frames and he acknowledged both. Uh, and I think again, uh, when we, you know, about him being questioned or scrutinized, um, he was larger than life. And many people have a hard time uh, dealing with that, uh, perhaps because they're, you know, disgruntled themselves or, or they simply will not believe that someone has led such an interesting and fascinating life. But, but some people are uh, like that. And I'm not saying that you have to be completely, you know, flamboyant and, and um, have these exotic things and magical things to be an interesting person. I think the key challenge for each human being, for each individual is to be honest towards uh, herself and see what what the hell do I want to do with my life and then I think a human being becomes interesting in the sense Mm -hmm. when you take your honesty and you roll with it Mm -hmm. and you you again take no prisoners and you're uh, consequent and and you uh, uh, act without compromise uh, that makes for an interesting human being regardless if you worked in the sideshow or not, you know, and I think everybody knows that you feel that there's something special with this individual and um, people call him, uh, what is it? Like he was a con man, but what the hell does that mean? Like a confidence man. That means someone who tricks someone. He was always very honest about, you know, you come to the lecture, I'll talk about werewolves. It costs $2 and 50 cents. That was like in the magic circle. Uh, going over into the Church of Satan. And that's exactly the same kind of attitude that, that uh, continued. You know, it was always public, you know, how much is a membership? It's this and that. And, and that didn't change, you know. So I don't know. Uh, I think to a great extent, maybe it has to do with, with uh, envy and, you know, jealousy in a way that uh, people who perhaps were in his uh, sphere, uh, and then for some reason, you know, fell out, you know, things happen. Uh, maybe they are the most disgruntled people, the most critical voices. Um, I don't really know, but I know, yeah. that it, I know that it has occurred over the decades and uh, I never saw anything of that, you know. Mm-hmm. He was definitely a showman, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that what he showed was unreal. <laughs> he was just very, very savvy about yeah. how to do it in a colorful and uh, exotic and also glamorizing way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, my approach is that every single person is just this temporary gathering together of history and all these other things. And to embrace that, I think is for a lot of people is scary. And you see um, a lot of people backing away from themselves and backing away from life. And then when you see someone who does just the opposite, embraces life and embraces the individuality, uh, of course, that's scary, you know? Um, but I also see, and I want to get into um the S word a little bit here, yeah, uh, yeah. With, with Satan. Um, 
because my understanding, the way I'm thinking about all of this is that Satan is an archetype. You know, Satan's the archetype of uh, the rebel and yeah. sort of nonconformity. And also I see him as a trickster figure as well. And, you know, I know that the word Satan actually means adversary uh, or accuser. I have seen it translated like that, but I think the main idea with Satan is the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the uh, religious studies scholar Elaine Pagels mentions this a lot, I think, in one of her books where uh, Satan is, there's always this otherizing, you know, yeah. this group is satanic, which is they are other, they are different. And Le- they embraced all of that. And there was this question that you asked many of the people you interviewed about Satan and Satanism. And whether or not it was the best word he could have chosen. And as I've been reflecting on it, it seems to me that it was the only word he could have chosen. Um, And so I was curious what your thoughts uh, were on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think, um, I think you're right. Um, We can only speculate, you know, exactly what he was thinking about when he, uh, you know, uh, started using the, the S word. Uh, and integrating it uh, as, as a symbol. But it also it became more than a symbol. It became an icon in a way under their specific uh, umbrella. Uh, but all of these things are true. And I think uh, if we go back to what I touched on just briefly, it's like his formative uh, years, meaning late childhood over teenage years, then as a young adult, um, he was uh, identifying with the outsider for sure. Uh, and he found, uh, as most intelligent youngsters do, a lot of the adult world uh, completely hypocritical. And we have to remember that he was like uh, born in 1930. So he could see like the horrors of the Second World War, uh, not in his face, but certainly be exposed to it through through the media of the time and see what, what human beings are actually capable of. And at the same time, you have this incredible um, glamorous world of movies you know because movies at the time say mid 40s had only used sound for instance for 15 16 years uh, and was like booming in every way Uh, and to a great extent also with these people uh, mostly Jewish refugees who had come from Germany and started working in in Hollywood you know so you have this interesting real, uh, what do you call it now? Uh, the kids call it IRL, in real life movement of actual culture uh, happening that affects, that has, is a cause and effect. Something horrible happens over here because the, you know, human beings are uh, vicious, vicious feral uh, animals. And then they come over here and they create sort of divine world of make-believe in a way, uh, in which you have this particular branch of I would call philosophical cinema, which is uh, the film noir, uh, also made to a great extent by by, uh, European expats in a way, coming from from, uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, And there you have, there's so many things that should be conflicting, but they're also gelling and, uh, you know, uh, melting together in in these wonderful, wonderful uh, creative expressions. So he was exposed to all of that and feeling a great affinity with the outsider, with the uh, film noir anti-heroes, as they're usually called. And I think that's a good 
uh, good word in a way. They're a hero, but at the same time, they're an anti-hero uh, in relation or comparison with the norm core uh, world, which at that time was very, very conservative and you know square in a way. Uh, and then you have this parallel stand over his occult studies. And uh, you, he was critical already early on, you know, these sort of uh, white witches and, and that popped up in the, during the 50s and uh, Gardner and sort of the Wicca movement and all of these things that basically tried to uh, whitewash what it was really about. And Mitch Horowitz expresses this wonderfully, both in the film and the book, uh, where he says that it's really about, you know, uh, getting your own agency. Everyone wants more power. We have been... Uh, contradictory we, we see we strive for power but at the same time we're conditioned saying power is a bad word you know it's like we we want it we're taught that we want it and as human being of course we want it but we're at the same time morally moralistically taught that it's not a good thing so essentially human beings human individuals they want personal agency they want personal power and traditionally occultism and magic has been a way of of boosting that of being a uh, healthy, benevolent force through experimental means and experimental psychologies of creating more agency in the in the human individual. Uh, so he he was all for that, of course. Uh, but a lot of the occultism around at the time was sort of uh, what do you call it? Uh, pussyfooting. It's like you know you you avoid the actual thing uh, and then try to call it something else. And he wanted to 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 you know get away with that. And so I think a little bit in defiance, but also with real affinity, he took this most controversial name and symbol from the culture that he was. Uh, coming from, and not necessarily the secular Jewish, because I don't think they talked so much about that, but meaning the overarching Judeo-Christian uh, culture that was so predominant in, in the US and still is. So he took that most controversial word, Satan, and knew very well, not only what it meant literally, but he also knew what it meant for him. And he also knew very well what it meant for all of these other people who, you know, when he pushed the button, they would react. But he, he want, wanted to, to uh, have that attention because he had this thing to sell. He had a philosophy, possibly a religion. He had a group uh, he was working on, you know, concocting something that would be a satanic Bible even. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he pressed the button. That's what he wanted to do. And uh, as many people say uh, in the book, in the interviews, it's like the effect would have been completely uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so much less yeah. hadn't yeah. he used the word Satan. It would just have been another self-help uh, group. Uh, from kooky San Francisco, which at this time was also uh, beginning to be, uh, you know, drug infused and, and sort of muddled and too wishy-washy in a way. Um, so he wanted to go straight for the juggler in a way, and he did. And it was strategized, absolutely. It was um, uh, successful because of that, because, of course, every talk show wanted to have him, every radio show. There were magazines uh, journalists coming from all over the world wanted to talk about, you know, what do you mean, Satan? And of course, he had to go through this over and over and over yeah. again. But for him, it made sense because it also made money in the way. He made money from the attention. Right. So uh, then I think the uh, term, the meaning of the term 
uh, changed a little bit, but this is just me speculating. I think it did become more, uh, as he became more uh, reclusive, meaning got tired of this first 10 years of massive attention. Mm. Then I think it came to look at uh, Satan as a more, uh, a magical force in a way, uh, using that within uh, not so much public rituals, but in personal rituals, and instead associating the term and the symbol with things that are outside. And that could be cultural expressions like, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, spruce gooses, spruce geese, you know, things, cars, for instance, that never... Uh, became successful, the industrial design that never became successful, uh, singers that had a flaring uh, career, but were then immediately forgotten, songwriters the same way, movies that were shelved. You know, these things became satanic for him because they were shunned by the majority. They were shunned by um, the mainstream, the norm core, as we call it today. And, and uh, for him, that had an... Um, inherent value that was much higher than if a unit had been sold in one million copies or if a movie was extremely successful. That didn't interest him. He was interested in the things that were uh, discarded and looking at, the, at, you know, why were these things discarded? And then when you work with these things, uh, you find that they have a huge power. It's the power of the, as you say, archetypical uh, outsider, the archetypical uh, Satan. Uh, and then he, you know, that was, um, I would say, his life all along. But I think he worked with that more consciously uh, after the Church of Satan had sort of gone into not hibernation, uh, but left the public arena in a way. Mm -hmm. And I know for, for sure that it was there when, when uh, I hung out during those years. Um, we didn't talk much about, you know, Satanism per se, but there was always this exposure to exactly this kind of culture. Uh, people who have been important for him in his formatting uh, of, of uh, the philosophy as such, and also actively using the symbol. Um, and I think it's still very, very valid, and perhaps more so today even, because in a culture that is, you know, where everybody uh, it's on some form of social media and there is a homogeneity. You adapt to the technological platform and it's mostly, it's not its possibilities, it's only its limitations, right? Mm -hmm. You adapt to the limitations. You can only write 140 words. You mm -hmm. can only dance on TikTok for what, how many minutes, <laughs> you know? And it, it's, it's just like, uh, it's not empowering. It's sort of deflating in a way, mm -hmm. taking away our possibility to express ourselves in a completely unique way. Whereas uh, a book from 1955 by some writers forgotten can actually have the power to change your life because you realize, whoa, this, I feel such an affinity with this person. Or you watch a movie from say 1964 that you've never even thought about. And then just by random chance, you see it and say, whoa, this is an old film and I'm thinking specifically now from from the kids point of view because they hardly understand that there was a before time and I'm not meaning right. in terms of the pandemic I'm talking about the internet they can't relate to what it was like living without the internet for instance right. but but um, if you look back there are many tangible uh, building blocks to look at and be inspired by whereas how many websites from 2002 can you remember what they looked like and what they contained you know it's so ephemeral 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the more mass market something is, the more ephemeral it is and will be. And thereby that will actually be forgotten uh, too, but it will have no value for some you know, future kid or archeologist to dig out because it won't even be there. You know? mm-hmm. Whereas these tangible uh, cultural expressions uh, are there for us to explore. That's something he taught me to be to be uh, to join the dots based on my own path of of resonance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like that, and it resonates with me in terms of especially when you were talking about the internet and uh, you know you and I are about the same age. Um, I think you're uh, you were born a year before me. So, mm-hmm. you know, Gen X solidarity. Yeah, um, it's a good <laughs> um, so I remember the birth of the internet and I did my master's thesis on uh, sort of the first online communities. And I remember the excitement and the creativity that was there at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And now it is like just this dead thing. You know, I'm like, where, where, where is all the art? <laughs> Where's okay. the explosive potential anymore? And all of these things. So would you consider these early, the early days of the internet as, you know, would that be considered like satanic? Would, would that be the, uh, an inherent power in that? If I'm making any kind of sense here. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I would, I would say then that it, it needs to have some other layers, some other dimensions also, okay. because if it's only like internet history, that's kind of causal and it yeah, yeah, tends yeah. to be the same trajectory as within business mm. in, in general, perhaps specifically in America, meaning you have something that has you know, a buzz, creates a buzz, this great creativity that attracts people and thereby it gets tempted by commercial forces. And if people sell out, that's what happens. So you have a brand name, for instance, that was once associated with one thing, but it no longer means that. It has lost or changed its meaning as a signifier. And then of course, it's just like yet another commercial environment or a community. Um, And I think that's happened with uh, uh, all of them. (laughs) And it's just just a a trajectory that seems pretty causal and can be expected. So I'm not saying that you have to be completely underground or, you know, um, off the grid or these things that can be pretty dramatic too. But what I wanted to say in terms of them possibly being satanic, and I don't know uh, what you mean. Do you mean like the well, for instance, things like that? Uh, well, the well was one of the early groups. What I was more thinking in terms of was how it was so individualistic uh, yeah. that there was, uh, what was it? GeoCities, I think, was the where people were posting things. And uh, it was this, this is where I came into contact with a lot of alternative thought. Uh, mm-hmm. For the first time, because, you know, yeah. I came from a small town in Ohio, old Midwestern town mm-hmm. where these things just weren't available. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden there was all these connections and it was exciting and wild and liberating. Yeah. And that's what I meant by sort of the satanic. But then, mm-hmm. you know, of course, eventually the corporations step in and just rob it of that spirit of creativity it seems mm-hmm. yeah well yeah. from that point of view absolutely you could say that you know whether it was satanic or maybe you know promethean or luciferian yeah, yeah. in the way yeah. that you know 
shine a light on all these things that are available and, and, and it's kind of free. And you click with your computer and you can access all these things in terms of information. That was very, very cool. Uh, and I would call it Luciferian or Promethean mm. uh, rather than satanic. But what I was getting at is that the added layer was, for instance, if you had nostalgic um, mm. personal individual memories, for instance, from the time, uh, could have perhaps have to do with something great of a sexual nature that you experienced with mm. some of the people, you know, whether online or in, yeah, in yeah. real life, uh, that kind of emotional investment that had to do with the community or environment, then it would be satanic in the sense from, mm. from this thing that, um, well, from the nostalgic perspective, and let's never forget that nostalgia can be very, very empowering. Yeah, and yeah, Lave yeah. talked about that and wrote about that a lot too. For instance, why do uh, old people like senior citizens often get stuck in the time in terms of their dress and behavior. It's, it's not because their development is arrested. No, it's because they want to remain in a time and space where they were sexually very active and attractive, you know? Mm. So it makes perfect sense. And that um, is why Satanism, according to LaVey, uh, uh, encourages this kind of it's not really role play. I would say existential role play to find your own aesthetic having to do with a time that may not be your own, but that you feel a great affinity with uh, from a sexual or possibly existential or sexual whatever, you know, uh, perspective. Um, and I think there's a lot to that because, again, uh, Satan is the enemy of homogeneity. You know, we can argue that homogeneity is, you know, crucial for survival, whatever. But if we take this, you know, compare it to one organism or one body, yes, it's great that everything is working together, et cetera, et cetera. But what happened when, you know, what happens when something becomes ill, like one arm becomes ill? Well, then you have an immune system pointing out to the guiding factors and to the entire organism through pain. Uh, that something is wrong here, you need to fix this. And that, to me, is exactly what Satan is. It's like this immune system of the totality. The immune system can mock the homogeneity, it can uh, criticize, uh, but it does so in favor of a greater kind of survival mechanism. It's very much part of the, I would say the, the cultural survival instinct. Uh, and if you look at it historically, um, uh, again, as you called it, an archetype. We have this archetype of the trickster and the opposer, the accuser in all cultures, uh, whether it's a you know polytheistic one or, or a monotheist one, it's there all along. And it's there to raise that voice of uh, critical uh, thinking, of critical behavior. Uh, and it's not, for, it's not an adversary in that sense that he wants to kill right. off. The organism because it is part of the organism mm -hmm. it wants to stress what's wrong what's hypocritical what creates infection for instance mm -hmm. that that's how i look at it and i do think that lave would agree there yeah yeah one of the ways that i always try to explain the figure of satan um especially in regards uh when he appears in the book of job is you know i always explain to students like you know in the hebrew bible he's not evil uh, it never says that he's evil. And, but what he's doing is, you know, I always ask him, I'm like, well, you've heard of the phrase devil's advocate, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, that's exactly what he's doing. He is 
the devil's advocate, you know? And I think that's what you were just getting at is that we have to have this alternative voice presenting, you know, the hypocrisy and all these other things to the greater culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, and I think that's why people don't like it because it's hard to hear. It's hard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, uh, one thing that I write about in the book, uh, it's actually an old lecture that I reformulated a little bit. It's called uh, Anton LaVey, Magical Innovator. You know, me being interested in what I call magical anthropology, meaning Mm -hmm. how human beings are relating to to the concept of magic um, throughout history, uh, then you if you look at it from from that specific perspective, you realize how innovative he was Mm -hmm. and how much he brought uh, occultism and occult philosophy and also ritual magic um, way, way ahead of all the things that basically came from like the 19th century and these old fraternities and the power struggles and always ends in disaster. Uh, but one of the things there is, is he came up with this concept called the third side. And for him, it was, uh, he had lived through it, you know, he had lived in a Judeo-Christian culture, in a way still still doing it, but he had sided with the other side, Satan, and the satanic, and of course he had seen what kind of effects that had on the, the, the overarching culture, how powerful it actually was. Um, but then he came up with this thing is that uh, sometimes the best thing is not to be um, inherently dualistic or create this kind of dichotomy between this and that you know sometimes the third side is the best side where you can watch both sides and make decisions like you know a gray eminence in a way working behind the scenes not being the little terrier yapping here or the german shepherd yapping here you know to be um behind the scenes basically and many of the people that he deemed uh, satanic that he uh, encouraged people to to study further were these people who sort of pulled the strings and had real power but they were not really the the picture perfect uh, sort of celebrity types that were yapping against some other similar uh, yeah. force uh, and in that sense uh, it's almost like um, a Taoist point of view you know it's it's, it's not this or that it's, right. it's both and or possibly not even that. That's also like a mental concept. Mm-hmm. And having that position, you are, again, you're an outsider. You choose to remain on the outside looking at this dramatic or should we say melodramatic thing uh, play out. And when you see that, you also see the weaknesses of both these uh, sides. And then you can use that to your own advantage or you can just let it play out in its, you know, simplistic absurdity. Uh, so he was very, uh, I would say, very, very uh, uh, advanced in his formulations. And also these kinds of thoughts and essays, they were uh, later life. They were more uh, from the 80s. There was one book that came out in 92 called The Devil's Notebook that's full of these gems, his own concepts, his own um uh, obsessions his own you know uh, pet projects and then there was another one published just after he died called satan speaks again filled with these kinds of essays and i find them you know uh, extremely inspiring in terms of um, uh, 
Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that everybody needs to be involved with ritual magic. It could be enough to just be aware that you have to change certain things in your life. And most of those things are actually causally available. It's enough that you make, make a decision to change things and then you act upon them. Sometimes you don't really need, uh, you know, the greater magic aspects of doing ritual, etc. But it can certainly add to the bouquet of leading a, a rich life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's several things I kind of want to uh, hit on here in regards to all of that. And I want to come back to the magic at a little bit later here, but first mm -hmm. I wanted to, I think um, this uh, third side, I noticed this, uh, you mentioned in your interviews that one of the questions you would ask people was about the zeitgeist mm -hmm. and the you know, church of Satan and the satanic Bible emerged in the 1960s. And it, I found it interesting because I also want to add not just a spirit of the time, but a spirit of place, yeah. um, be, you know, in the United States, but also he was in San Francisco yeah. and I could see how, you know, there, there seems to be something that was very conservative on one hand uh, about his approach, but then there was also something that was exceedingly liberal about what he was thinking too. It, it wasn't that either or, and I appreciate, you know, he, he didn't like the hippies. And it seems to me that he saw something there that a lot of people missed because one of the things I always think of is, yeah, they're the ones who gave us Ronald Reagan. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that that's a very, very good example uh, with an, like an application or an implementation of the third side in, you know, in praxis. Because you had, of course, the, the what I call the overarching culture, which was, you know, very conservative. And we're talking about, you know, 60s. So there was the Vietnam War and there was, uh, you know, a strong, you know, evangelical spirit in a way. Um, and uh, just politically conservative. And then you had the reaction to that, you know, the anarch anarchistic reaction to that was like free love and LSD, you know, and maybe as you say, you know, one thing pushed the other and then there was a pushback during the seventies. Um, and of course, that's just how culture works. I mean, that, that's a, a no brainer. That's exactly what happened. But at the same time, he was in there presenting something that was, you know, uh, neither nor, you know, right. he had a strong sense of uh, law and order. And, uh, you know, if you want to criticize that, that's just, you know, draconian, whatever, to see my crypto fascist, but it really wasn't. It was just like law and order, um, not with, <laughs> kind of you know police brutality added to that you know it's like strict law and order uh, is satanic uh, so that turned the the hippies off but could possibly appeal to the squares to the conservative squares but at the same time you have satan and you have all of this experimentation with ritual magic and sexual experimentation that was really um psychologically based or or uh anchored in a way, not just free love in Golden Gate Park, which I'm sure led to a plethora of uh, unwanted pregnancies and venereal disease. You know, so he was like the, the common sense in between these two extremes. Um, and of course, 
uh, it attracted people who understood that and saw that, wow, this is very, very cool. So it wasn't really a mass movement. I mean, the book sold because it was available and, and you know, a mass market paperback. But I think the Church of Satan was very uh, uh, confined, safe space for people who really dared uh, touch themselves and give themselves a chance to explore, like really explore. Uh, whether with, uh, you know, at the Black House or with people they connected with at the Black House. So I think that uh, that's one example of exactly how the third side worked in praxis. Um, and, uh, of course, if he hadn't, again, used the S-word, then it wouldn't have the same impact. You know, right. he couldn't have presented all these ideas and concepts because no one would have listened. It would just been yet another uh, you know, creative person with a self-help concept, but mm -hmm. uh, he anchored it with something that was very controversial. So that turned a lot of people off, but that's by design, you know, why would you have people who might actually not be interested asking you the same questions over and over again, when you can have intelligent people who see through this, what he called the bullshit detector in a way, and, and just welcome them into the devil's den and see what happens. I'm sure that was right. much, much more interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the questions I had for you was in regards to the Church of Satan. And I noticed that in the, um, the blurbs, you know, the opening of the book, there were several mm -hmm. religious study scholars who mm -hmm. were praising the work and saying, yes, it's about time that we yeah. bring this into the conversation. And, and I agree with that. But one of the things that I've been ruminating on all week is, was what LaVey created, was it a religion or was it something else? What exactly was going on? And one of the questions I was that I came up with was, was it a religion and a church or was it more of a um, provocation or maybe it was all of the, all of these combined. Um, I think at some point, maybe I hope that I'm quoting you. I think you referred to it as a conscious provocation for the Americas of the 1960s. And I also wondered was it a kind of performance art in a way? Um, uh, I saw in the um, uh, Speak of the Devil, uh, uh, Rex Church, who uh, I don't know anything about him other than he was uh, identified as being a satanic priest. He referred to it as ascetic terrorism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it could be all of these things because when you have something that is uh, open-ended in a way, I mean, it is clearly defined and it was defined by LaVey, but then of course uh, people can feel free to, to define it, you know, what they want to get out of it. That could be good or bad in hindsight. Um, uh, but let's return first to, to uh, the, uh, uh, should we put it, the, uh, provocation or yeah the provocation uh, again you know uh, and i was thinking of the, the performative thing oh yeah, okay. um, yeah. he performance art, of yeah. course you know i don't think in his mind there were any like concepts like you know performance art or that kind of very intellectual discourse that defines certain things as being performance art uh, but he was certainly um, aware of how to stage things you know he could have been like an occultist closed 
within his own closet, writing these missives and sending them out. That could perhaps have been even more glamorous in a way or more mysteriously attractive. But uh, in terms of being performative, yeah, he played a part. Mm-hmm. And whether that was like, you know, performance art, I'll leave that to, to, to future experts. <laughs> but he was certainly, in that sense, a showman, knowing the value of making a strong impression. And, and uh, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, with this book. I'm holding up the book, California Infernal, mm-hmm. uh, Anton LaVey and Jane Mansfield, as portrayed by Walter Fisher. That, that's a book that I published, I think, in 2016. Uh, and it, that has a mysterious history also. But basically, it's a German paparazzo who took pictures of uh, LaVey, also a lot on, of Jane Mansfield, and specifically of them together. And they were both very PR savvy. You know, mm-hmm. They knew the value of good PR. And he was, the photographer was called very, very uh, willing to cater to that uh, because those pictures would sell, he would make money. So there you have that thing that um, there were certainly things going on like Sub Rosa, you know, in the privacy of the black house with the Church of Satan members or congregation. Uh, But there was also one huge part of it that was strategic and being visible and, and as you say, performative uh, for this was the phase that dealt with attention, getting attention, and also, you know, getting the word out there Mm -hmm. by this attention. So in that sense, uh, definitely performative. Uh, but then you have this question that you posed slightly before that, uh, whether it's a religion or whether it's something else. Um, I find that kind of hard to answer, actually, yeah. because um, I'm sure there are some scholarly uh, set of uh, criteria that needs to be fu- that needs to be fulfilled for you know this is a religion or no, this is not a religion. Well, he had a, a Bible. <laughs> That's a good start. Yeah, yeah. So he had a congregation and they did rituals together, which uh, could be repeated on a regular basis and were during this first phase. Uh, so, yeah. And then it's grown to become uh, uh, perhaps not like a church service uh, religion, but certainly a philosophy that encourages the people who are interested you know, whether connected to the Church of Satan or not, to Mm -hmm. experiment with the rituals in his Mm -hmm. writing. So I would say that it is a uh, philosophy, it's a magical philosophy that has the potential to uh, be tangibly religious, tangibly touch on being a religious structure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's not, I wouldn't say, it's vice versa, meaning it's a religion that has the power to touch people, to be inspired, to, to uh, work with magic. I, I think the philosophical and sort of inspirational side of it is more uh, prevalent, dominant than the specifically religious uh, side. But it's, it's really um, up to the person who's defining this. And I'm sure some religious scholars or um, you know scholars of religion would have some criteria that say yay or nay, but that doesn't really interest me. Uh, he, he claimed that it was a religion. Uh, post facto, Church of Satan claimed it's a religion. So well, I think one has to, to uh, go straight to the horse's mouth there and say that, yeah, it's a religion, but it's, it's strongly dominated by a philosophy that has the power to, to affect. Uh, it's not based on like a congregational kind of uh, energy to be functional. 
Yeah. It, it, to be fair, it was a little bit of a trick question um, because it, even in scholarship, there's no clear consensus on what constitutes a religion. Right. Um, I think. And, you know, the categories of philosophy and religion is not always clear. No. Um, but I, I see him identifying it as a religion as, you know, another way of pushing the button. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of why I was uh, asking the question. Um, do you think he got tired of playing the part? Is that one of the reasons why he ended up being sort of reclusive uh, towards the end of his life? I think so. But again, that's me speculating. Uh, but, you know, looking at uh, other people that I've met who, uh, like artists, for instance, who, who got a break early on, you know, this demand of, you know, feeling that you have to paint the same painting 30 years later. Um, it, it's, I think it's a dilemma for anyone who's been in the limelight. It was, you know, had that public acknowledgement and success. That, uh, what do you do when you feel sort of drained and depleted by it and not sort of enhanced and enriched by it? Then yeah, you, you retract. And then you could say that, you know, Sometimes human beings have a tendency to make a virtue out of necessity. Maybe he didn't have the energy and then you just, you know, instead of, you know, calling it a reclusive strategy, whatever, he just did it and let other people, uh, you know, speculate about why. Um, but I think it's just natural, you know, uh, as you grow older, you, you get, you need to conserve your energy for, uh, purposes that uh, should be defined by yourself and not by public demand and I think that's exactly what happened you know yeah. whether or not it was triggered by interfamilial conflicts or, or extra um, you know extra cultural uh, hostilities whatever um, I think he, he just felt more vitalized than alive when doing the things that he loved to do. I mean, that's a luxury. That's a privileged yeah. situation that you can do that in an environment. Again, he came up with this thing called total environment uh, that is uh, replenishing. When you're in the total environment that you have created 100%, then you will be replenished. Uh, and that's what he had created. Uh, the entire black house, in a way, was a total environment with rooms that had you know, different themes and different um, styles that he could go into when he needed a certain kind of energy. So in that sense, the entire place was a multi-room magical uh, ritual chamber or a, a temple in a way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's a great shame that the Black House was demolished. Yeah, truly. Yeah, truly. yeah. yeah. that's something that should have been preserved just for national heritage, I think. Yeah, yeah, or or or, or local heritage. I was yeah, thinking it was like yeah. the perfect thing for San Francisco to, to oh, have yeah. because yeah. he was so associated with San Francisco. And it's so funny, I think, you know, uh, Peggy Nadremia, who's the high priestess of the Church of Satan now, she says in her interview that hadn't it been for the S-word, he could have been the mayor of San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was so friendly and so, you know, what do you call it, locally patriotic in a way, loving San yeah. Francisco. And, um, you know, bringing a lot of attention to San Francisco. Of course, there were critical voices saying, this is not the attention that we want yeah. our city yeah. to have. But at the right. same time, you know, who knows? He was just a, a very friendly and generous person uh, towards those who deserved it. 
And I think she's right about that. Had he gone down the satanic avenue, then he would have become, he would have been a great man in some other respects mm. and also a celebrity, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask also about um, this. I do know that Blanche Barton said, and I think a few others said this as well, but she said that LeVay was apolitical. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I buy that. Um, it, it, it seems like there was something very political about what he was doing. Is that a question? <laughs> well, it's a comment and a, yeah, I guess it's a question, uh, it's a comment and kind of begging for a response. Right, uh, right, right. Because, because I can see how, uh, you know, I, I think that Blanche also said later that she saw Satanism as activism. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you can reconcile being apolitical and being activist. Right. Well, I think that that uh, we have come, and I don't know if I'm referring to, you know, our generation or our, our cultural perspective or the discourse of today. I don't know, but I think we've come to to uh, look at all these things and associate them with certain things that they actually might not be. Uh, I think everybody has political views, you know, mm-hmm. but I think he stuck very much to uh, the philosophical level, and you know, sometimes it's the distance is not that far. You know, for political implementation. Um, he was pragmatic, meaning I don't think he would have sided with any given uh, party, especially not in America, where there are basically only two. You know, yeah. they, they, you know, they have the, their advantages and disadvantages. I think he was simply too radical and too pragmatic to, to take sides in that sense. That, however, doesn't mean that you can't be political. And also, you can always be political without any extroversion. You know, mm-hmm. being an activist, it is not uh, a telltale sign that you're political. You can be political in complete si- silence. Mm-hmm. And even not voting can be a political uh, stance. So I think he was very much um, one of the key phrases or the key concepts is that responsibility should lie with the responsible, meaning that you should have a certain kind of capacity to grasp the societal needs uh, and structures um, before you should be allowed to vote. And I'm not, I don't want to put words in his mouth, that, that's about just, just the way I see it. So responsibility should not be with people who simply have a job in fulfilling some kind of quota and lifting a paycheck for doing something that's actually a responsible and very important societal function. Uh, and I think, again, you know, he was quite stern, very much a, uh, Nietzschean, uh, in a way, meaning that um, there is a difference between people. However, it's not a collective difference. You can't apply that on gender, on race, on religion, meaning he was kind of proto-American in a way, proto-constitution, in the sense that it's all about, you know, uh, a go-getter kind of uh, attitude. And people who fight and overcome hurdles, etc., they get tough. And they maybe can uh, assume more responsibility than someone who watches from, you know, the safety of their uh, TV couch in a way. So I think there's always a sense of stratification there, but it's not malevolent uh, in the sense that you, you just have to be realistic and say that some people are, aren't cut out to be presidents of the United States. 
um, as we've seen <laughs> so so recently, uh, yeah. without naming names, of course. Sure. Um, but I think that uh, he would have been uh, critical towards trying to extract political solutions from his philosophy. And I think uh, that's probably what people mean when they say he was apolitical. I, I agree, it's a problematic term. Uh, but there's certainly, uh, if you wanted to, you could, you could uh, sort of distill, based on, on the philosophy, you could distill some you know, political uh, implementations. Um, but um, I, I don't think uh, that I, I could do that, or even if I wanted to do that, because you could also... That's the, the, both the blessing, it's a two-edged sword. It's both, both a blessing and the curse of a philosophy that is so specifically a philosophy. It has to do with the individual assuming uh, his or her own responsibility in life and basically leading a good life. It's a very strongly, you know, Epicurean uh, mm -hmm. way of, of living life. And you can find Epicureans in totalitarian societies. You can find Epicureans in completely liberal, anarchic societies, uh, it sort of goes beyond the systems mm -hmm. in a way. It's a matter of who you are on the inside. And, and the uh, Satanists exist in every culture, in every uh, system, whether it's political or just like, you know, control, uh, state, uh, religious groups, whatever. There will always be someone who um, maybe is an outsider, outsider, or also an outsider-insider, not necessarily to wreak havoc and create disturbance, but uh, just the, who doesn't feel completely at ease by giving up your personality right. in a greater collective, you know. Right. And that in itself, what I mean is that that, that itself is a political stance. Mm -hmm. And I think the discourse today is very much uh, simplified, saying that you have to do this or that to be political. I don't buy that at all. Yeah. I, it's that when I grew up, uh, it was always supposed to be a secret who you voted for right. uh, in, in Sweden, where I grew up. It's like, you know, that was one of the key secrets. You don't have to tell anyone because if you had to, like in the States, for instance, you have to register as a Democrat or a Republican. You know, I don't know if that's mandatory, but it's very common anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's like public record who you've registered to vote with. Mm -hmm. and, and that to me is like, you know. Uh, that's not really individualism. That's kind of totalitarian, actually. Yeah. It's like yeah. a, a fake democracy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that, and this is my perspective, is that, you know, I think, and, and I see this as being inherently American, but I think it's gotten lost over the years. But I see the necessity of being the best person you can be. Mm. Uh, that's how this country is supposed to run that everyone is supposed you know this goes back to the idea of a republic and virtue yeah. you know and so i see that as a necessity and that self-work and being that individual being that strong individual i see as inherently um political and i agree with you that what we were seeing now is a lot of people not doing that often. And you mentioned this in the book, they're often instead, you know, um, playing the victim. Mm -hmm. And there is this identity of political party. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me, it just shuts down any kind of 
meaning the possibility of any kind of meaningful conversations yeah uh and um any kind of meaningful politics as well mm. yeah I agree completely, and he would too. Uh, he would probably laugh at it, the fact that it's gone so far. I was while you were talking, I got these associations to you know perhaps perhaps you could say that if you wanted to extract uh, some kind of ism, it would maybe be libertarianism that would be inherently satanic. But on the other hand, he was very much in favor of of. Uh, of law and order. And I'm not saying that libertarianism is contrary to that, but you have this, it's almost an anarchistic sense, you know, I can, I can take care of this myself, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I think that law and order is best upheld by a fairly strong, um, how do you call it, uh, overarching uh, power that should be, you know, working for the people, of course. Right, right. Uh, so maybe it's libertarian on the individual level, but there needs to be a strong state in the sense of keeping uh, things in order. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's very different here because here you have, uh, you know, uh, basically the basic uh, safeties of society that are run by the state. You know, you can open up a private clinic if you want to, but the hospitals um, have been only recently in Sweden become somewhat privatized but it's still controlled by the state and that's an incredible feeling of safety knowing that you're taken care of and it's yeah. the same rules that apply same of course for you know fire department and police and the military and these very basic things uh, so i think that's a way of creating a uh, an environment where individuals individuals can actually be very very free because you don't have to be concerned about uh, those things that in other countries are like threats even yeah. can i afford to go to the hospital right. can i you know can i trust this police officer <laughs> you know so and i'm not saying that any system is is um, uh, all systems have their advantages for sure so but again i think that if you want to extract some kind of ism uh, libertarianism with an added layer of uh, a benevolent state control would be yeah. uh, fairly satanic yeah. 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 I don't, I'm not a big fan of the isms so much, but uh, I try to avoid them, but yeah. I, I, yeah. Um, it's hard um, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. And um, you know, because we're always creating these categories and then, you know, someone has to come in and bash the categories yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. because they never are perfect in any way. Um, so I know we're getting close to our uh, time limit here, uh, but I want to ask just a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. Uh one is the uh, you've mentioned magic a couple times. I'm curious as to how he understood magic. There seems to be, from what you were saying, a sort of the idea of the will, which seems to be kind of Crowleyan in a sense. Yeah, um, do what thou wilt as uh, a whole of the law. Um, but, and there was definitely a sense of a ceremonial aspect, but he, mm -hmm. but it also something that you were talking about very early, it made me think about, uh, chaos magic as well, mm -hmm. that you use kind of what works. Mm -hmm. So how did LeVay think about magic? I mean, you, and you've already talked about the lesser magic and the greater mm -hmm. magic, but I, I guess I just want a little bit more of an insight as mm -hmm. to the role and function of magic and Satanism. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's a very interesting question. And of course, again, uh, we can only speculate now what 
he would have thought. But again, then again, he did write about it, and and there, there's enough of of uh, memories and the people who met him, you know, to be able to to speak about these things. I think he was very very pragmatic. Uh, you know, the uh, affinity with Satan as a symbol and a, and an archetype that's one thing. But then when you delve into the real uh, magic, and uh, I'm not saying that lesser magic is uh, not real it's very real in a sense but if we delve into this sort of uh, supernatural or supra rational and um, you know something that defies uh, current science you know there are no explanatory models uh, then i think he absolutely accepted it uh, as a fact meaning that if you do certain things under certain conditions it will have an effect outside of the, the temple space or the ritual chamber. And whether or not that's, uh, you know, inside the mind that these are psychological things uh, that leave sort of residue outside, or if you're actually sending out vibrations, that's for, you know, like magical theorists to speculate about. But he did, uh, you know, uh, grant the concept as such uh, absolute validity, uh, meaning that the things you did in the ritual chamber, it's not for show. You know, you, you don't need to have journalists there in order to create something. It could be you alone or very few people. Um, and I think one key to it was the, the word psychodrama. It was psychodramatic. And you need to uh, charge things in a ritual, but you can also have feel a need to discharge, you know, to get rid of something uh, like uh, catharsis, cleanse yourself. And these, you know, things exist in all magical cultures and all magical uh, systems and traditions. Um, but for him, I think it was very much, uh, he was very strong on atmosphere. And you have time, you have space. These are the two basic parameters. And time, of course, can be upheaved by appealing to certain sections of the psyche through a sense of smell, the senses basically, also through music, which goes beyond hearing, it goes inside and affects you emotionally. And then of course you have lighting, uh, basically creating a, a set design for success, meaning whatever it is you want to achieve, you fill the space with things that will lead you, uh, that will be beneficial to the psychic process. And then, of course, you have your own behavior, and your own behavior should not be uh, causal, mechanical, theatrical. It needs to be invested with emotion. And uh, that's something he wrote about at length and something I wrote about in the book also about these concepts that he really stressed, the emotional. And if you have these things, um, you can create a successful ritual meaning one that doesn't only feel good in the moment, but will lead to success out there in the sort of objective reality. In that sense, I think there is a great uh, resonance with and affinity with uh, chaos magic and all these kinds of, sort of pragmatic systems, also the one uh, or the ones that were integrated by the Temple of Psychic Youth, basically the same era in a way. And I think uh, it's a kind of, basic way of describing, a schematic way of describing how this works without any sort of empirical fantasies. Crowley nurtured empirical fantasies, and that was one of his failures, according to me, uh, you know, trying too, too hard to um, 
take something that belongs to one sphere of human existence and consciousness and, and sort of drag it into something that is much lower, much lesser, meaning empirical materialist sciences. Uh, LaVey was a materialist, but he also gave, you know, loads of acknowledgement to the fact that there are certain things that we cannot explain yet. And whether we ever can, that's, we'll just have to wait and see, or that's for future generations to find out. The main thing is, that is fascinating to work with, that it does bring results. And the way to do that is not by adhering to some medieval grimoire with some weird names uh, that you can hardly pronounce written in, in archaic languages. It's about looking uh, what makes you uh, fill up with resonance, mm -hmm. uh, with the goal you're after and how you get there, uh, simply to go beyond the causal the expected, again, the materialistic in a way, by delving into a mind frame and a behavioral frame that is uh, highly irrational, I would say strictly emotional, and also fun in a way, mm. even though it might be very serious. Um, you do something that resembles a play, play acting in a way. Mm -hmm. You play act the desired result and you weave in all the senses while doing it. That I think uh, constitutes the essence and, and ingredients of a satanic ritual. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I like it. It makes me think that a lot of the rituals I do have been inherently satanic. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, What's your show called again? Uh, Rebel Spirit Radio. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Rebel Spirit was actually a good friend of mine helped me with that name. So I have to give her uh, credit. Um, yeah. Uh, so I know that we're almost out of time and maybe this is unfair to ask uh, at such a late uh, hour, but mm -hmm. um, the, I have to ask the question about leg, uh, legacy. Uh, what is LeVay's legacy? Do you think? I think uh, it's uh, basically uh, two kinds of legacies. One has to do with the church of Satan itself. And, you know, they have a strong presence, a great website. I'm sure it attracts people, uh, like-minded or not like-minded individuals who feel a resonance with the teaching in a way of philosophy. Uh, so that's one legacy that seems to be very well uh, functional, working well, and attracting new new people. And or part of that is also uh, keeping the uh, the books in print, making sure that the, his his own legacy is preserved and available. Uh, and then, of course, you have the legacy that cannot be controlled. And that's how individuals uh, take on inspiration, for instance, and work with it. And whether or not they redefine it, that's besides the point. Some will feel inclined in a way maybe that I have done to, to write something about him. And, and, uh, or they might not. But, you know, they're still carrying on a legacy because the teaching or the philosophy is alive in them and inspiring them. Uh, so that is, of course, harder to talk about, that kind of legacy. But I, I can foresee that um, he, will be, uh, he will be remembered, you know, as all these parameters are in place with the Church of Satan and also the books in print and, you know, books like mine. And, and uh, there will be more of that, I think. I think there will be more like, you know, biographies, maybe critical biographies. Uh, he will become more and more accepted in the mainstream. And we've already seen that happen with, uh, you know, kitschy television and, and references made in TV series and stuff like that. But I think he's just, he, he is, um, he's an American icon 
you know, even his face has this kind of iconic structure. I've seen pins of it even with mm -hmm. just his face or with a black house. So it's just like uh, in some kind of uh, netherworld or shadow world of American culture, he is an American icon. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think he was very necessary, especially the, kind of it drew out a lot of the hypocrisy of American evangelicalism. Yeah. You know, and there are times very frequently where it is abundantly clear that Satanism is way more moral <laughs> than uh, a lot of uh, American Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's not moralistic. Right, right, <laughs> it has right. a healthy morals. And I think also about legacy, I think it's very important to, to not be stuck in the 60s. You know, you have yeah. to, to evolve with the times. Yeah. And, you know, the Church of Satan, you know, have, uh, have specific, you know, with the Baphomet, they, their symbol mm -hmm. uh, on a rainbow flag. And, you know, yeah, they, yeah. they uh, approved of, of Black Lives Matter and mm -hmm. all these things that are just, you know, inherently healthy that you speak up for things that are good uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, yeah. and, and just uh, criticize the things that are bad. Uh, that's kind of like, again, as you say, it's a kind of a moral obligation, mm -hmm. uh, specifically if you want to be taken seriously, because there is also the risk always of these things that they, they, they uh, are occult in a way, but the word means hidden. And if you don't right. sort of nurture it and keep it up to date, it will grow old. It will just be overgrown by new things. Uh, and I think the Church of Satan, are, they're doing a good job there and just keeping up with, with the times, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what you have to do. And that's a mm -hmm. great way of securing a legacy. Yeah, yeah. Also, another thing, actually, uh, they also add things to their canon. It's not just LaVey, you know, they've right, added right. a few books to their canon, meaning new writers who have mm -hmm. added to the canon. And that, of course, you need that infusion of, of new blood also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, you know, I have to admit, I haven't read LaVey except for the excerpts that you had in the book. Um, but he's definitely someone I want to uh, do some reading on, uh, mm -hmm. uh, read some of the things that he wrote. Um, so I, I know that we are out of time. And um, uh, one final question um, is where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Mm, I think um, I'm, I'm symptomatic of the times, meaning I exist yeah. on many different platforms. Yeah, uh, sure. But if uh, the, the gateway is probably the best one is my own uh, website, which is very simple, uh, www.carlabrahamson.com. Carl with a C, Abrahamson with two S's, carlabrahamson.com. And the other one is, is that I always try to point people to is uh, the Patreon that me and my wife have. That's basically our social media hub. Uh, and uh, we love that. And we love to interact with people uh, at that Patreon. And that's patreon.com uh, slash Vanessa 23 Carl, Vanessa 23 Carl, patreon.com slash Vanessa 23 Carl. Okay. And, and um, through those things, you'll find all of the other ones, uh, yeah. Twitter and Instagram and, and whatnot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I will uh, put links for your website and the Patreon okay. uh, and also for your book in the show notes and the video description. Um, Thank you. 
So, uh, but uh, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, I have a lot more questions, I think, but <laughs> I know it's- oh, you know what? Let's, let's, uh, let's do a follow-up at some other okay. time. Yeah, I'm sure we can that. keep on talking forever. Yeah, yeah. It's been fascinating. And uh, uh, give me time to read some of his works and we can yeah. chat on there. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so Carl, thank you again so much. I really yeah. appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having Thanks. me. And I'm uh, looking forward to the next time. Okay, great. Wonderful. And that's a wrap on episode 33 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a short but positive review, and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast and my work possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.